You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. And this is my last episode for the year, going to have a couple of weeks off over the Christmas break. Do some reading, plan some episodes, give your ears a rest of me. I thought that it would be good, given it's Christmas, it's the 21st of December, as I sit here and record, to have something a little bit Christmassy. And hence the title of uh, this episode is Have Yourselves a Materialistic Christmas. Now you may be wondering, oh, echo theologian encouraging us to be materialistic at Christmas time. What's gone wrong there? Well, wait. Uh, and listen and hear what I have to say. And I'm not um, urging us to go the whole hog, as it were. But one of the things that bugs me sometimes about quote-unquote progressives or the left or whatnot is we can be rather dour and, yeah, I know, the world's in an awful mess, let's be honest. And the trajectory that we're on is not a good one. And we need to do something about that. And yes, it does fall to personal preferences and it does fall to individual lifestyle choices and so on. But we need to push a little bit beyond that at times, I think, and embrace a true Christian materialism. And so I want to describe that. And I really do want to encourage you to have a a good time at Christmas, believe it or not. So let's kind of define the parameters of that. Now, materialism can mean, at least in my mind, one of a couple of things, and I'll I'll point out the fact now that this is going to be a terribly deep analysis. It's a bit off the cuff, a bit unscripted, and I think that's appropriate given the time of year. No, I don't have a a wine in my hand. Uh, I may as well do. So materialism, firstly, of course, um, is very much something that springs out of a scientific worldview or can do. I'm reminded of Carl Sagan's TV series from the late 80s, Cosmos, which of course was rebooted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was indeed one of his protégés. But at the very beginning of this TV series, Sagan says, I don't know if he wrote it or someone wrote it for him, that the universe is all there is and all there ever will be. And that, in a a nutshell, is of course a statement of physicalism, that the physical is all that there is and a denial of what we might call spiritual. Now, of course, as, as a Christian and a, and a particular, my particular faith journey, dualism is, is a problematic term. But a Christian, of course, embraces some form of dualism. And as I've said before in this program, there are two classes. There is the creator and the created. And human beings fall fairly clearly on the right-hand side of that, or the, the second side of that statement. So we embrace the idea, unless, of course, you're a process theist, in which case, 
Maybe you've got some idea of God, a bit like that of Q, for those who are fans of the Star Trek franchise. <clears throat> if you're not, just to fill in quickly, the Q continuum, it appears to me, are a race of beings that have evolved to omnipotent-like power, but they're not separate from the universe. Whereas in various forms of classical theism, God, of course, can sit outside of creation. The creation is not an emanation of God, but you can nuance that in various ways with your view of the Trinity and divine transcendence and divine immanence, or panentheism, for example. But my point is, is that Christians do embrace some form of dualism, but there are a lot of dualisms that we need to avoid, like the plague, if you'll forgive a cliché. Uh, for example, heaven over earth, which is a misunderstanding of soteriology or eschatology. So, um, theology of salvation and theology of the end times. And I've said this many times in the program that the Bible's very clear, and I guess in one sense I'm preempting what I'm going to say, or part of what I'm going to say is about the salvation of all things, the making of all things new, as, as we're told in Revelation 21. Or we might favour the spiritual life over the um, secular life. So Christians traditionally focus so much on um, what I'd call... In, in evangelical circles or conservative Christian circles, a form of clericalism, which one would otherwise attribute to medieval Catholicism and the idea of monasticism or calling to the cloth as the highest calling. That's another form of dualism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a fundamental category that says there are things beyond the physical world. And yeah, I know you get into first year philosophical discussions, as I did, about how the spiritual interacts with the physical, and if this physical, uh, if rather if the spiritual is non-physical, how, how does that interaction occur? That's a bit of a, a sidetrack, I think, from the idea that there is uh, a class of being, and we call that God, who reveals God's self as personal, but is not by necessity. Or, or by essence, I guess, tied to the physical universe. So when I'm talking for a, um, a Christian materialism, I'm not saying that we abandon any idea of the idea that God is, is spirit. And that's you know a big theme in, in John's Gospel, God is spirit and truth. Uh, physicalism, of course, has the problem of reductionism. And reductionism, as I've talked about in other programs, if you've not heard, the idea that you reduce one class of events or one set of phenomena at which you can describe at a particular level to the next level down, and then you keep going. So, for example, I think that I'm aware and conscious, and I'm thinking about thinking and thinking about theology and so on. But to a reductionist, what's happening in my mind reduces to what's happening in my brain. In other words, my thoughts and my feelings and my... Uh, what I perceive to be my consciousness is, in fact, an illusion or induces purely to my brain states. And they can be described by biochemistry and, and the laws of physics. And then you go all the way down to particle physics, and then all of a sudden, the self has disappeared, as has this podcast and everything with it, down the, um, the rabbit hole of reductionism. That, of course, is not satisfactory to every materialist, every atheist, and so they'll go hunting for things like emergence, which is, again, something I've talked about this year. The idea that you can't reduce, in a purely physical sense, um, in terms of, of causation, higher level phenomena to the, to the lower level, either in what we know, 
that's about epistemology or what actually is ontology. So higher order phenomena, genuinely new things. Of course, we can appropriate that straight back for uh, religious discussion simply because people uh, like Stuart Kaufman use explicitly religious language and seek to, if you like, demythologize it. So this is not the kind of materialism that I'm trying to get us to embrace, per se. The other form of materialism, of course, can be best typified by an expression that says that he who dies with the most toys wins. Or a few years ago, when uh, my wife and I were more into collecting teddy bears, the, the bumper sticker from the teddy bear shop we went to was, he who dies with the most teddy bears wins. You get the picture. In other words, it's the idea that we place large amounts of value in material things. And this is the crux of many people's, uh, many Christians in particular's problem with Christmas and how it's celebrated and carried on and so on. So we seek value and meaning in the number of possessions that we have, or the types of possessions, and this is dismissed as being idolatrous and greedy and so on. And of course, it's the way society is driven. If ever you've watched uh, a video from The Story of Stuff, and I highly recommend looking at that, there's a real problem with what's known as a linear economy, and that's simply that it starts with extractionism, or the extraction of, of raw materials. And I should say, too, that it's easy to be down on the mining industry for the terrible job they do at times, but without certain raw materials, you and I wouldn't be here living the standard of living that we are. Um, that includes, the, unfortunately, the extraction of fossil fuels to generate energy to uh, run... Uh, medical equipment and hospitals and to produce vaccines and all manners of things that are the positive benefits of industrialization. That notwithstanding, very clearly we need to be more careful with the resources that we have that are not renewable and turn as much as possible, particularly when it comes to energy generation to renewable resources. So I just think that, you know, the idea of mining per se uh, or extracting of resources shouldn't be one-to-one -one, uh, identified with extractionism, which I think is an obsession with doing that. And I won't make specific comment, but you see that in the way some countries hold on to the idea that one must go on extracting fossil fuels when there are clearly other ways of generating our energy now. But um, so the whole idea is that you extract resources and you do that cheaply. In other words, you don't factor in what economists call the externalities of things. So the fact that greenhouse gases are produced by the burning of fossil fuels, the fact that mining can lead to the devastation of, of ecosystems, but also, of course, in the labour. And so it's in some countries where there are poor environmental laws, there are also poor labour laws, and that's not just in, quote-unquote, the developing world either, or the majority world. And then you produce a whole bunch of things really cheaply so that people can afford to buy them, and there's built-in obsolescence, and the whole point of the story of stuff is there's a bunch of things that we don't, we don't keep for very long. So the issue then, so that's your connection to the kind of an environmental or the love your neighbour aspect of things and labour laws and the way in which people are able to live and pursue their lives and, and not be able to do so in a, um, a just manner with regards to their health and their working conditions and fair pay for, for their efforts. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me, you think about a kid, and the kid will 
a young child and they'll go out and they might come back with from the beach with a pocket full of, of shells or they might go on a walk and come back with a pocket full of interesting rocks. I think that children are inquisitive and they're acquisitive. In other words, there's something hardwired into human beings that we want to know and learn and understand and we want to collect stuff. So I don't think we should necessarily look down on people who collect things per se. Um, but it's the manner in which they collect them and what they collect and so on and so forth. So, you know, if you've got a stamp collection, that's relatively harmless. If you like collecting books, then that's okay. Um, sooner or later, we can identify something that you might start, start to suggest, well, either the amount of the way in which you do it is, is harmful or what it is that you're collecting or the amount that you do it is harmful to the environment and it's an idol and blah, 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 blah. But the idea itself that human beings like to collect things, I mean, it's rooted in biology if you think about it evolved to live life on the savannah and you get hold of a resource particularly food then you're likely to save that up for the harder times either you know in treating meat or whatever they did back then or in, in your body fat so we need to retrain our brains as much as anything obviously as well as our hearts and our desires to, to understand this so uh, materialism in that sense isn't always all bad, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But in a world of great injustice and imbalance and so on, we really do need to temper our desires. So where am I driving with all of this? Well, you know, what we're looking down the barrel of is Christmas. And I want you to have a good time at Christmas. And I don't mean that that means being naive about the state of the world. I don't mean that means spending all your money on yourself. Quite uh, apart from that, when you understand I think a Christian materialism, that becomes impossible. What it does do, though, is, is help us to understand the importance of the material, the value of the material, both to ourselves as the blessing from God and things to be enjoyed, but also resources to be shared. Um, so, and I think this is a counter to a style of Christianity that says, the only true calling is poverty at all times. Well, if you're blessed with wealth, then what does that tell you? Or that at the very least, we should go around feeling incredibly guilty all the time and look miserable and po-faced and put on sackcloth and ashes, uh, which is not what I think we're called to either. A very strong awareness of materialism, that is an embracing and understanding what it means to be material, will actually help us to focus better and understand the problems uh, that are implicit in the way in which wealth is generated and the way it's distributed and so on and so forth. So maybe I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but it, it comes back down to, ultimately, my canon within the canon, if you will, and that's John's Gospel. And we're running into the halfway mark. But I, before we get to the, the second half, John's Gospel, in, in essence, it's chapter 1 and chapter 20, it, the book starts and ends in, in very similar kinds of places in ways in which I think enforce a good Christian materialism. Chapter 21, a bit of an appendix in a sense. But these two, together with seven signs, really reinforce the idea that the material is good and valuable and embraced by God, hopefully to teach us, to school us in a way that enables us to embrace the goodness of the material thing and not turn it into the idol of, of worshipping in, in terms of one form of materialism, or on the other hand, um, 
reducing everything that is to just the material. And we will treat that by looking at both John chapter 1 and John chapter 20 in the second half of the program. Welcome back to the program. In the first half, I was trying to distinguish, or more to the point, talk about two different forms of materialism, one that comes from a scientific point of view and the other one that's driven, I guess, by capitalism and the perversion of our desires, and say there was a third option for the Christian and that it was rooted um, ultimately in, in John's Gospel's description of the incarnation. So it's Christmas, or coming up to Christmas, and we'll all turn our minds to mangers and cribs and angels and all sorts of iconography, if you will, about the Christmas story. But John's gospel zooms out in a big, big way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So I've read verses 1 through 5 and then 14. It's a very deliberate echo, of course, of Genesis chapter 1. And what do we get in Genesis chapter 1 except an explanation of the goodness of creation? In particular, following the likes of John Walton, the goodness in a functional sense. That is, the world working in a manner that was supportive of human society and culture, agriculture. And where everything had its place, and including the non-human and those creatures outside the human economic sphere. And so there's a very deliberate echo. You know, John's a very Jewish book, even if it's written by a Hellenistic Jew, but it's a very Jewish book. And it starts, of course, as I've said, with Genesis chapter 1. Now, one of the, the things about this is it's very high Christology. It's John's very high sense, or the, if you like, the fourth gospel, um, Fourth Gospels, very high Christology, very high sense of the divinity of the Logos, the organising principle, maybe it relates to wisdom and, and Proverbs. Ultimately, of course, it talks about Jesus as the Logos, the Lamb. There's a whole bunch of terms that are used to describe Jesus. But here's the kicker. And the Word became a man and lived among us. It doesn't say that. And the Word became human. And lived among us. It doesn't say that either. And the word became flesh and lived among us. So it could have said an heir, which means man, or anthropos, which means humans, but it says sarx, the Greek word for flesh. Now, 
you always need to read words in context, and it's very easy for those of us who dabble, and I should say dabble on my part, into biblical languages. It's even harder in English, or even easier to do, rather, in English, make this mistake, and find a word and then find it all the way through the Bible and say, oh, it's used this way uh, in, in this place. It must mean that in another place. And I know there's an old principle in evangelical circles of Scripture interpret Scripture, and I understand and appreciate that. But different writers use the word in different senses. So when you read it, for example, in Paul, Paul contrasts the sarks, the flesh, to the spirit. And he's very clearly not talking about the denigration of the body, the soma, uh, but he, he's talking about the sarks versus uh, the spirit and, and saying, what drives or animates you? Is it the, the spirit of God or is it fleshly desires? But here... It's very clear it, it means that Jesus becomes physical stuff. It's the same, I believe, in the Greek translation of, uh, let me get this, is Job, where Job says that in my flesh I will see God. So it simply means the physical stuff from which we're made. But the very fact, it seems, that this statement is coupled with the idea that everything comes into existence through Jesus is that it's not simply stating Jesus' self-identification with human beings. That's very much what you get from Philippians chapter 2, in that great hymn to Christ's um, kenosis, self-emptying. But here we have a radical identification with the physical, with the living. Jesus um, comes uh, to earth and becomes flesh, the physical, the material. Now you see where I'm going here. And so there's a real sense in, in the ministry of Jesus, there's an act of recreation. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. In Genesis chapter 1, creation comes into being through its ordering. And you see that in this on day 2, you get the separation of the waters above from the waters below. And then on day three, the waters separate uh, into one place so that there's dry land. So there's the act of creation of the world, if you like. But then what happens in uh, the flood is that's undone by human sin, and then the waters uh, recede, and there's an, an act of recreation. And in the priestly tradition, there's a promise of blessing again, as there was in Genesis 1. And then what happens in the Exodus? You get another act of creation. It's the creation of the people of Israel as the waters of the sea part and reveal the dry land and the Israelites walk across. Uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, John 1.14, and I'm kind of paraphrasing and I don't have the Greek in front of me, but, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. This is a real reference to the Exodus again where there's another act of creation of the people of Israel. Of course, really, that's what Genesis 1 is about, but it grounds it in creation and opens up that story for all humans to know the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But hold that thought. Jesus embraces the physical by becoming it. Then if you go to the end of John's Gospel, you hear me flicking the pages, John, John 20, Early on the first day of the week, hint, while it was still dark, another hint, Mary Magdalene 
came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so there's the story of who runs into the, the tomb and blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And uh, as she wept, she bent down to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken my Lord and I do not where they've laid him. And... I'm just trying to find, ah, uh, here we go. And then she turns around and um, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then he says, Mary, and she recognizes who it is. And then Jesus says in verse 17, do not hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Do not cling to me. There is no one fleshing act happening here. We are in a garden. You are a woman to be sent out to be the first apostle. I am more than just a gardener, even though you're right to mistake me for uh, one because I am the new Adam. And so John's Gospel starts with Genesis 1 and it finishes notwithstanding the um, kind of appendix, if you like, of Gen chapter 21, with Genesis 2, with, again, human beings in a garden being given a vocation to renew the world. So Jesus embodies, embraces the physical, the material. And if you think about um, the structure of John's Gospel, is the rhythm of that, of course, is seven signs last of which I think is, is the resurrection. But along the way, there's Jesus making water into wine. There's Jesus turning up at all the Jewish festivals. In the synoptics, we know that Jesus was accused of being a, a drunkard, someone who went around eating, uh, feasting and drinking and so on. So here's a man who knew how to have a good time. I'm not kidding. Here's um, the Son of God who was not an idolater. Um, he wasn't a glutton, after all, and he wasn't an alcoholic. But he embraced the physical things of life in due proportion. And being the agent of new creation, surely he understands and should inform our understanding that to embrace, if you like, a Christian materialism. I'm making that up as, a, as an idea, but that's, that's not the point. Ultimately, what I'm saying is that he understands the interconnectedness of all physical things. And therefore, it's, in, it's possible to feast, but to do so in a sustainable fashion. Um, particularly if you understand that in the ancient world you had these festivals where you had a slap-up uh, feast, whether it be a, a wedding or the, the agricultural festivals, which had religious significance, but you didn't live like that all the time. And here's the thing. I think that we underdo materialism precisely because we place too much value in it in one sense a lot of the time or not enough because we take it for granted. And then if you have a Christmas celebration, isn't that a step up? What if the baseline was lower? What if we were more restrained in our day-to-day -day living? And then at times like Christmas, 
When we as Christians, for goodness sake, celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Incarnation, should therefore be able to let our hair down a little bit, and to feast properly, and to value the material, so much so that we grasp the wonder and the mystery and the awe of God becoming a human being, but embracing flesh, embracing the material, representing, identifying with and redeeming all of creation. So the Christmas story is not that very far off, particularly if you take this larger lens from ideas of eco-theology and conservation and climate change and all these sorts of things. And you can embrace one and do it well, and maybe sometimes look like the glutton and the drunkard, but not be. To know how to celebrate and to celebrate with our neighbours, also know how to share our resources and not just hog them for ourselves. Why? Because like the Apostle James, we understand the value of the material and know that you can't simply give someone a spiritual blessing. Yeah, I know it's a valuable thing. I know the significance to it. But the, the term or the phrase thoughts and prayers has been incredibly watered down by its overuse and not being backed up with the value of the material and the feeding of the hungry. And I know charity in one sense could be seen as a terribly um, weak thing and patronising thing, even though it's not meant to be, when we should be shaking the order of the world so that uh, people don't go without and don't require quote-unquote charity. But remember, charity is another word for love and uh, 1 Corinthians 13 translation, all the translations of that contain charity rather than love, so we need to think about the love is really expressed in wanting to see the best for everyone and share the material wealth. And that so at this time we can think seriously about materialism without falling into prosperity doctrine, which we know is an anathema and, a, and an idol and a heresy and all the fr phrases that you can throw at it. But don't, for goodness sake, go too far the other way and become a dour and miserable lefty. You can't tell a joke and can't celebrate and can't value these things because grace, saying grace for these things, is not just thank you, overindulgent daddy God, but I understand the value of what it is that I have and I'm grateful for it and will think more wisely about the impacts of this on other human beings and the entire creation and indeed sharing the wealth and the blessing. Again, to go back to Genesis 1, that the fruitfulness and multiplication applies not just to human beings, but to the non-human creation. So hopefully that might kind of make sense. So I'm going to have a couple of weeks off, as I said, at the start of the program, and I do hope that Christmas and indeed um, what's left of the season of Advent, if you mark that well, um, is a time of reflection. Yes, um, if we don't turn the ship around, the planet on which we live, the material place in which we are placed, uh, is at great risk of being greatly degraded. Lives will be lost, both human and non-human. So ponder the incarnation in that context. Celebrate well and think about how you might recalibrate your life in the ordinary times, if you will. Always thankful, um, always valuing the material, the blessings of those, your body, which is material, um, thinking thoughtfully about its slow decay in, in a Christian sense. But yeah, don't, don't be down. 
now is not the season of sackcloth and ashes. Now at this time of year is um, to make your face shine with oil, to use the, uh, the Hebrew Bible um, metaphors, and to put a smile on your face and to be grateful that God, uh, the one full of grace and truth, took upon flesh, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of all creation. Thank you once more for listening. Merry Christmas and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.